This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Mujta Baraban. Mujta Baraban is the Managing Director and Practice Head of Europe at the Eurasia Group. Mij, we've done these podcasts a number of occasions in the past. There's always plenty to talk about. I thought today we'd start with the EU recovery plan, Next Generation EU, hailed as a major success when it was finally agreed by member states last year. But is it my imagination or there seems to have been some kind of obstacles put in its path now as we speak? Great to join you again, Paul. No, you're right to flag um, new hurdles that have emerged, um, the most recent being a decision by the German Constitutional Court to look into the legality of the uh, recovery fund. This is in the aftermath of uh, the German parliament actually signing off on um, the own own resources uh, legal basis that underpins the the recovery fund, um, and and now we're in a process of delay really as as the German uh, constitutional court considers um, how they're going to manage and handle the the case. So um, there's a number of different ways in the, in, in, in which this can now now play out. I suspect kind of best case scenario is you're looking at a slight delay, but money still landing to member states, July kind of time, that, that around that time frame. But there are there are tail risk scenarios, more consequential scenarios, where you end up with a longer delay because the case is referred to the European Court of Justice as the final arbiter of EU law. I suspect that won't happen, but it's a possibility, in which case you're probably not looking at money until hit, coming to European capitals until... September at the earliest, if not beyond that. And then there is a small scenario, you know, we'd say that's around a 10% risk where the entire construction, the recovery fund construction, uh, you know, um, uh, increasing the own resources uh, mandate for the commission to then go to capital markets, borrow, and then to transfer that money as grants, as well as loans to member states, that entire construction being uh, uh, determined to be unconstitutional and incompatible with German law, in which case you're then having to build something from scratch again. Well, let's take a big leap of faith and assume that this German uh, legal case will be sorted out one way or the other quite soon, hopefully in a positive way, so there's no longer an obstacle there. But bear with me while we rewind briefly. You say member states may start getting their, their, their allocation of funds maybe late summer, but before that, they have to submit plans don't they, to the Commission account. They don't just receive a cheque. How does the process work? So you're, there is a process, a long process that underpins uh, uh, actual disbursement of money. Um, in the first instance, member states have to do two things. They have to both identify reform projects that they're going to, reform plans that they're going to implement. 
um, and have a conversation with Brussels about what those reform plans are going to be and how they can be made to be more ambitious and the timescale over which they will be implemented. And in parallel, member states also need to identify investment projects. So when they solicit these funds from Brussels, they need to articulate the projects and the ways in which the money will be used. So both the identification of reforms and investments and that conversation with Brussels is a process that's ongoing while Parliament's actually moved to ratify the own resources, the own resources decision that will give the Commission the legal base it needs to go and be able to borrow from capital markets. So you've got these processes currently playing out in parallel. And the idea is that come the summer, the late, you know, kind of mid to late summer, uh, actual money will be landing in EU coffers and they will then, member states will be able to use some of this money to both catalyze and propel their economic recovery at, at the same time as, as contributing to genuine economic transformation. So making European economies more fit for the digital age, facilitating member states' ability to meet the EU's long-run carbon ob uh, carbon neutrality objectives through to 2030 and 2050. So there is a lot of process involved, but what I would say is actually the process is working quite smoothly. Uh, member states are submitting um, fairly robust reform plans. Officials in Brussels are happy with the ideas that are being submitted. There's a good exchange of views. The French, for example, they tabled fairly light touch reforms, you know, basically a recommitment of everything Emmanuel Macron, French president, articulated in the Sorbonne in 2017. And in the aftermath of Mario Draghi's arrival in Italy, the French have become a bit more ambitious. They're a bit more concerned about being perceived to be the laggard, trailing Italy, being left behind. They also want the mechanics and the, the process to work in a way that's smooth so that money can be delivered quickly, so that Macron can champion the recovery fund, can champion here's a very tangible benefit of Europe, given how the EU level has been struggling with the vaccination rollout and the procurement of the vaccines and all of the issues concerning the vaccination process and rollout. So kind of Macron's quite keen to champion a success on the recovery fund. And in order to do that, they need the money and the money needs to land by the end of summer. So that process is actually working quite well. That's why this new hurdle introduced by Germany's constitutional court is a bit more worrying because that's a bit more complex. There's a very there's a very dynamic legal debate that now needs to be had. Um, and that's concerning, I think, for a lot of the countries that have been working quickly to ratify the own resource decision, get their reform plans approved, get the, get the investment projects identified so they can start spending this money and start bolstering their economic recovery. Because the court case, of course, does not just affect Germany, it affects the old member states, correct? Well, so, so it is the German constitutional court that has decided to assess whether the construction is compatible with German law. Um, so it's, it's primarily in the first instance, an assessment that the German court will make about the compatibility of the recovery fund with the German constitution and German domestic law. But the implications are macro and Europe wide. I think most of the sensible people um, that are looking at this, I think, are of the view that uh, Karlsruhe, the court is likely to agree that the recovery fund goes forward, but they're likely to attach conditions right. to it. And those conditions are, are probably going to impact in a negative way 
the ability for the Commission and EU officials to make the structure a permanent feature of the Eurozone's architecture. So, you know, kind of in the very short term, I, 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 I suspect they will waive it through, you know, the court has no incentive to be seen as the institution that in the middle of a pandemic, um, uh, you know, uh, rules in such a way to potentially introduce another existential crisis into the heart of the EU because this, because this is ultimately about the core of the recovery. So I think um, that, you know, I, I would say there's not a massive amount of concern that the court is going to rule that the construction is illegal. That, that, you know, they're, they're worried about their reputation. They did come under huge amounts of pressure last year when they assessed the legality of the ECB's pandemic programme. And I think they don't want to go around that ringer again. You know, it's important to recognise that the German parliament with a very substantial majority also voted in support of the own resources decision and de facto as a result, the recovery fund. So there are some constraints, I think, on the court, but they are likely to attach some strings and those strings are likely to be of the, you know, of, of, of the kind that, that say, look, in normal times, there are constraints on uh, the German government's ability to borrow. And so in normal times, i.e. not pandemic, um, you know, we need to apply some constraints on the EU level's ability to do the same. And this is all with a view to protecting, in, from the court's perspective, the German taxpayer, because what the court is very reluctant to do is 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 have the Bundestag have the German Parliament be in a position where it does not have full visibility over its long term liabilities? Okay. The German Bundestag has to be in a position where it can assess what its long term fiscal liabilities are of the German taxpayer. And the concern, of course, with the recovery fund, we know the Commission is going to borrow a huge amount of money, 750 billion, but it's very unclear how that money will be repaid. Right. There is a, there is a willingness to stand up supranational taxes, carbon taxes, digital taxes, taxes from recycling, uh, plastics and, and all sorts. But the point is, at the moment, those plans are only plans. They're hypothetical and it's not inconceivable. The Commission may need to ask member states for additional fiscal commitments. That means additional fiscal liabilities for the German taxpayer. And that's the concern I think the court has, that it doesn't have full visibility over those long term liabilities. OK, well, let's let's move on. You used the, um, the phrase just now, uh, genuine economic transformation. So let's assume for the sake of argument that the funds have been dispersed to all the member states. How how transformational do you think this recovery fund would be? I ask the question because historically there are always these issues of so-called absorption capacity. Member states who are less well off uh, receive substantial amounts from the EU budget, but then they have difficulties in actually spending the money because it has to be matched by local spending, domestic spending and so on. Are those kind of absorption issues going to be a, a problem here as well or not? Yeah, I think they are. I think they're going to be a real constraint. Um, and when you look at structural funds historically, and the absorption capacity, for example, across Southern Europe, you know, the, the, the rate is not as high as one would expect or like it to be. So I think there is a real problem. There are issues around how efficient and effective the bureaucracy, the judicial system um, is in many countries in Southern Europe and Central and Eastern Europe. And that will all act as a break and a constraint on being able to use and spend this money as effectively and as efficiently as possible. So I think there are real problems about absorption capacity. There are real concerns about how credible the investment projects that member states are articulating 
um, you know, how credible these are and, and how genuinely transformational these projects will ultimately prove in putting Europe on that trajectory to facilitate its digital and climate transition. So no, I think there are real concerns. I mean, you know, these, these ideas are somewhat theoretical now. All we're talking about really is a document going into Brussels and that document having a set of plans and a set of uh, possible projects articulated that pass a sniff test in in, in right. Brussels, as it were. Um, um, but but you know, I think no, that these these are real concerns, and I think that there's a there's a, there's a bigger concern as well. I'd argue with the recovery fund, and that is, you know, is it is it a vehicle that's meant to sponsor? kind of short and, and provide a short-term cyclical boost to the economies of the euro area that was originally how it was conceived you know it was meant to be a vehicle that would facilitate and promote economic recovery in the aftermath of covid mm. or is it or is it something that's a bit more structural a bit more medium to long term you know as we're talking about now about transforming economies through these projects that take a lot longer to deliver well, in that context, Mitch, to what extent do member states have pretty much uh, full independence, autonomy to spend these these funds that they wish, or do they have to, in effect, a bit like with the Euro- eurozone crisis all those years ago, re- report back to the Commission, and the Commission has a kind of a policing role, even though they might not use those that kind of language. No, you're right. So there is definitely a, a, a process in Brussels where um, officials in the SecGen, in in the Economic and Financial Affairs Directorate, and other parts of the Commission along with a committee of member states will be assessing these reform plans so that will definitely be an integral part of the process i wouldn't you know but you know is the commission or other countries going to veto the use of these expenditures in a member state i find that highly unlikely you know the commission's always put in a very difficult position where hardline northern european member states want the commission to be tough and enforce these rules but if the Commission were to enforce these rules and that were to create political problems in the member state concerned, the Commission would then somehow be blamed for the fact that's then created downstream political problems in those member states. So it's never easy being the enforcer. And the Commission comes under all kinds of competing pressure from the different member states. I think given the nature of the pandemic, given the importance of this financing uh, as a short-term boost to demand, but also this medium-term question about, you know, really kind of promoting uh, improvements in productivity and building out this long t- these long-term changes, I think it will be very, very, very problematic if a member state were not to receive uh, its full envelope, the full amount of money that it is entitled to. I think the Commission will be very, very cautious about wanting to veto any plans, which is part of the reason now there are very, very, very interesting, violent, almost discussions taking place between Brussels and the member states in private. So before member states submit their formal plans, which I believe will happen at the end of April, before those final plans go in for them to then be discussed in these committees that I'm talking about, there's a real back and forth taking place in private. And I think that's because once the plans are public and have gone in officially, they won't be amended in a material way. So the moment to change the plans, the moment to influence countries and to get them to be more ambitious, the moment to pressure them is now, is in private. It's not going to be beyond April because after April, once the plans have gone in, the Commission effectively is going to have to rubber stamp them. If the Commission says, no, the plan's not good enough, you can't get the money, I just think there'll be way too much political blowback for the for the member state concerned, but also 
uh, for the institutions in Brussels. And for that reason, I suspect the Commission will absolutely not want to do that. So okay. all the interesting conversations are taking place now. After April, I suspect it will all be pretty rubber stamp. And as, assuming I'm right and the German court, uh, you know, ultimately sanctions the recovery fund and there's, you know, just limited strings attached. And I suspect the money will begin to flow, as I say, July, August time. Okay, let's move if we can. It's a bit of a bit of a change in gear. Talk about EU UK relations, but also UK Ireland relations uh, post post Brexit. The the very now hotly contested Northern Ireland Protocol is causing problems on both uh, Ireland and, and the EU by extension and and the UK. What is your current take? Where as we stand? Where where are things going? And and how optimistic or pessimistic are you about some uh, some outcomes, some positive outcome being reached relatively quickly? So I'm quite pessimistic. I think there has been progress at the technical level and there is a mood in Brussels that says UK officials are engaging and there is a desire to make the protocol work and there's a recognition that the violence in Northern Ireland is a problem and it's incumbent on the two sides to jointly work to to, to implement the protocol in a way that works for Northern Ireland, works for the UK government, works for the EU side. So I think there is a sense that all is not lost. And I think it's important to reflect that sentiment. That's recent, um, you know, as, as, of, as a kind of the weekend earlier this week. At the same time, I think the gaps between the two are really substantial and very substantive. I think there's a big competing uh, kind of ph philosophical difference almost around where the onus lies to, you know, on, on which party does the onus lie to now move? You know, I think the government is of the view, the UK government is of the view that the protocol needs to be made to work for Northern Ireland and it doesn't currently work, which is why David Frost had to do what he did. That's the justification UK officials provide. Of course, the EU side is very annoyed about that. And the UK, I think, is of the view that, well, uh, the, for, for lots of different reasons, the process and the responsiveness of the EU side to the problems that were being flagged in Northern Ireland which just, was just not quick enough. So the government had to move to prevent this becoming a real political problem uh, in Northern Ireland. Island. And as such, you know, you did have David Frost articulate those unilateral extension of those grace periods. And, and I think the UK does want to continue to see the EU afford uh, it more flexibility in how the protocol is implemented. So there's many different ways in which that can manifest. But one example, of course, is an agreement over animal plant and food uh, hygiene standards and you know, the, the kind of UK view that we don't need to align dynamically with Europe forever. We can instead agree to an equivalence deal, you know, where we broadly remain, you know, we, we remain aligned to your standards and if things change, we, we will kind of let you know. And the EU is not really willing to be flexible. And, you know, kind of from the EU's perspective, this isn't really a joint endeavour. So this kind of narrative that's being pushed by the UK that it's incumbent upon both to make the protocol work Yes, there is a recognition of that on the EU side, but there's also a sense that, well, actually, you know, you know, kind of the majority of the obligations now fall on the UK side to implement the protocol. This is an issue that's been discussed a billion times over through the divorce, through the negotiations over the future relationship. And, you know, it's really incumbent now on the government to implement the protocol. And so, so you know, kind of the, the, the UK submitted a work programme. The EU wanted a roadmap. You know, the EU wanted a roadmap because that implies it's for the UK to implement a set of steps that will bring it into full compliance with the protocol. 
the EU basically, the government is effectively of the view that no, that can't be the way this proceeds. This is a joint endeavour and both sides have to move. So that's the philosophical divide between the two. On, on substance, you know, kind of the deal over FPS, um, sanitary and phytosanitary standards would alleviate a very large number of the checks that need to take place. The EU's always been very clear that uh, the, all of the other checks, you know, on, on, on VAT, on, on customs and tariffs, on what they call market surveillance, which is about conformity with EU regulations and standards. On all of those, they can be done away from the border. So you really can de-dramatise a lot of the checks down the Irish Sea if you get an agreement on animal plants and food uh, kind of hygiene standards. But, you know, is, is the UK government willing to do that? I think unlikely. Is the EU willing to be massively flexible? I think unlikely. The problem for the EU is if, if they are flexible with the UK on that, on that um, issue, they're very worried other third countries are going to look at the demonstration and the precedent set by the UK EU deal and then seek something similar. So EU officials are, you know, the view that their decisions don't operate, their decision making doesn't take place in a vacuum. Lots of other countries are looking at what uh, happens via the UK. And as a result, they're not in a position to offer the UK something that other countries may then seek. Of course, the UK doesn't buy that narrative at all. They don't think other third countries, frankly, care too much. And they don't believe there's much evidence to support the claim that they are watching and are concerned by these concessions. And around and around we go. I think the, the, the major point, Paul, is I think this is going to require serious reflection and a lot of work on both sides in order for an agreement to come together. You know, there's also big disagreements on timing you know the government is only committing to begin implementing checks in november and then in four phases which means the uk may not be in compliance with the protocol until after q1 next year that that's on a timetable that's obviously way too slow for the eu side and you've got the elections to storm on next year german elections later in the year where the german government won't be formed french elections presidential parliamentary next year so i think there is a, a real desire to get something done quickly so the implementation can move ahead quickly but in a context where there's no trust there is no trust i think some of the some of the issues that have taken place between the two sides especially on vaccines has really damaged trust on both sides and there's a real toughening i think even if kind of sensible officials in the middle their their views and perspectives have become tougher and harder and each is more defensive that's something that i certainly I think, pick up on in my interactions. And all of that means this is going to go on for a very, you know, I think it's going to be difficult and challenging to agree to a short-term fix, notwithstanding the progress that's being made at the technical level. Have these problems been going on for quite some time, but less visible behind the scenes and only erupting now? I'm just curious because obviously the transition came to an end uh, 31st December 2020. So why not all of a sudden, but why, why do... Is there seems to be more of an issue now when they're or they're just simply now that they're just more visible these concerns i think look i think part it's partly to do with um the ending of the transitional period i think that's absolutely right and there are real um, um issues now that uk exporters are facing into the eu market and i and i you know so i think i think yes absolutely kind of some of those challenges in getting goods across the gbni border are an issue and have become more of an issue um, um as a result of the end of the transitional period but but even then you know even then lots of grace 
there were grace periods and uh, different checks have been disapplied. You know, the UK is not applying checks on goods going from NI to GB. So there's already been a degree of flexibility. And even the EU side has extended certain flexibility. So, I, you know, I think, look, there are, it's not all about the ending of the transitional period. I think, what well, you know, the, the real issue here, I think, is, you know, Sethkovich was literally due to pick up the phone to David Frost in a couple of hours. And, and kind of two hours before that phone call was meant to happen, David Frost announced the unilateral extension of these grace periods. And I think there was a sense that in the joint committee process, a real work and progress had been made on understanding the UK government's concerns and articulating and, and beginning to identify kind of problems that would resolve some of these issues. And so what's completely lost on the EU side is why Frost felt the need to do what he did when the joint committee process was working, in their view. And Sefcovich was literally, you know, due to pick up the phone and call David Frost. Why, why did David Frost do what he did? That's really created, I think, a big, again, concern that the government on this side is playing electoral politics. They want to be seen to be hard with Europe. They believe that plays to the Tories' electoral strategy. It reinforces Frost's popularity with the base. It keeps Labour in a very difficult position because it forces them to kind of come out and take issue with what the government's doing on Europe and then the government can attack Keir Starmer for you know, not getting over the referendum decision in 2015 yeah. and so on and so forth. So I think, no, these problems are are systemic and have been around for some time. Well, thanks for then, because we only have time for one more question, Mitch, uh, which is the following. You said that trust is in, in short supply on, on both sides for lots of different reasons we're pretty much familiar with. What what needs to be done now in, in, the, in the short to medium term to try and, and find some possible way out of this apparent impasse? So I think in the first instance, the government has to be very clear about its unambiguous commitment to the protocol. It needs to reaffirm its commitment to the protocol. That's something the EU wants to see. I think there is, you know, they're, not, they're not clear what the government's long run ambition is regarding the protocol and whether the government is actually serious about fully implementing it as a final end state, is that kind of the end state the government is is is, is seeking to get to. So kind of re- re- reaffirmation of government's full commitment to the protocol, I think, is, is very important. And I think that will help sponsor a degree of flexibility from the EU side, primarily because it will allow Sefcovich to go back to member states and say, look, guys, you know, you do have a government that is... Um, you know, is, is, is serious about implementing the protocol. And as such, you know, let's have a look at what we can do to, to help make it work. And absent that, it becomes very hard for Sefcovic with the harder line member states, the French and others, because there are questions about what the government's up to. There is no trust. And, and Sefcovic, I think, really burned himself with EU capitals because he really did put himself on the line in encouraging flexibility through that period, December, January, uh, Sefcovic really did put himself on the line. And it's a gamble that is seen to have not paid off. He was made to look quite stupid. And so he's been burned. He's quite risk averse now. And I don't think he's willing to make a strong argument to EU capitalism until he's sure and clear in his own mind about what it is the government's up to. So the government should move first and do that. And I think that will help solve at least politically, will create a bit more space for a bit more understanding and a bit more willingness, perhaps, to compromise. Okay. Well, we have to leave it there. Mr. Barabin, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Paul.